Turn with me to James chapter 5 today. James chapter 5. As was mentioned in the announcements, for everybody who is a partner and a member here at Hermiston Assembly, we're having our annual meeting next Sunday night, Lord willing, if we don't have more snow. Uh, but, um, but next Sunday night at 6 p.m., not 6.30, but 6 p.m., and, if, and you'll see your packets out here in the lobby if you haven't picked yours up yet. And uh, so please do that before you leave today. So today I want to speak out of James chapter 5, this final part of the message uh, on this series called Just Do It. Turn to your neighbor and just say, just do it. Just do it already. Uh, take that step of faith. Believe God. Amen? And so we're going to look at James chapter 5, and I'm going to specifically read verse 8. And, and the title, if I give this word a title, I'll call it, and maybe it's different on the screen here today, but I'll call it the joy of expectation. The joy of expectation. How many of you know that the individual who has the most hope or the most joy has the most influence? Think about that. The individual that has the most hope or joy, they're kind of synonymous, uh, has the most influence. Um, when you walk into a situation or walk into a, a room, if you don't like the atmosphere, then change it. Uh, bring joy into the, into the atmosphere. Bring joy into the room. Bring joy into that circumstance. And of course, we know that joy comes from the Lord. But in verse 8, it says this, so you also keep your hopes high, or can I say keep your hopes up, and be patient, for the presence of the Lord is drawing near. I want to read that again. So you also keep your hopes high and be patient, for the presence of the Lord is drawing near. What's that talking about? It's talking about a day and an hour where the Lord is going to return for his church. It's calling for a day and an hour where we will see him again face to face. And so in the break, I'm not going to go... I'm going to attempt to go over this chapter, but not so deeply that we we run out of time. Uh, There's so many things that James is addressing here, but there's three primary things I want to convey. And so the first one is this. Our first point is this. And if you can bring up the slides. Do we have those today? There we go. The first one is this. Generosity breaks the greed mentality. Generosity breaks the greed mentality. Um, uh, in verse 3, or, uh, well, let me just read verses, start in verse 1. It says, Listen, all you who are rich, for it is time to weep and to howl over the misery that will overtake you. Your riches lie rotting, your fine clothing eaten by moths, and your gold and silver are corroded as a witness against you. And it talks about how that we have hoarded up treasure for the last days. Now let me break this, let me break this down. In, this, in these first several verses of this chapter through verse 6, James is basically addressing the issue of greed. Now you could, if you have more money than someone else, then that makes you richer, right? It doesn't, we're not talking about the lower, middle, and upper class type. In essence, we're, we're talking about just that spirit of greed. He even addresses employers versus employees, and we'll touch on that a little bit. But it's this, it's this idea that if you have been blessed in whatever measure that you are to use it for the kingdom. 
Uh, in essence, what he was saying was stop hoarding. Stop hoarding. We've seen those TV shows of hoarders. How many of y'all watched one of those? I'm not talking about necessarily that kind of hoarding, but I'm talking about an, a hoarding that, that is based on greed, not, not necessarily insecurity, but greed. So much so that he says here, in essence, you have food on the table that is rotting. You have silver and gold that is rusting. How does silver and gold rust or tarnish when it's not being used? Does that make sense? In other words, we have re, we, he's saying here, you have resources that you're not making use of. Um, as you know, when it comes to the word of God, I appreciate Alan you know, talking about tithing and offering this morning. When it comes to our resources, when it comes to the things that God's given us, uh, you know, James says, you've got food on the table that's rotting, you've got gold and silver that's tarnishing. How would it even do that? It, it, does, it does that by un- or misuse, if not no use at all. In other words, hoarding it and just letting it sit there. How many of you know that, every, and we were talking about this, we have our growth track class, we run step three today, We'll start it again next month for those who've not gone through it. But uh, we, we talk about even tithing and offering. We talk about not just our financial resources, but even our physical resources. That, that in all reality, all of it belongs to God and we are stewards of it. When I, when I raise my kids, I would often say these kind of things. I would say, you know what, kids, this house that we live in is not our house. It's God's house. This car that I'm driving is not my car. This is God's car. This is, I'm simply a steward of it. I remember the house I'm living in now. Um, you know, this is the thing about God. God, he loves, to, he loves to surprise us with good things. I remember the house we were living in before, uh, across town. Uh, we got to the point where we had four kids and we had three bedrooms, but one bedroom was like a walk-in closet, you know. I mean, it was just like barely just over a thousand square feet and the kids are getting bigger. And my youngest at that time, she was still in a bassinet. She was over a year old in a bassinet next to our bed because we didn't have anywhere else to go with her, you know, didn't have a spare closet. And so, you know, we're like, Lord, you know, it's getting cramped in here. And, uh, you know, my boys by this time, they're doing big leaps off the bunk bed in their bedroom. You know, I mean, you know, it's just the, the running room is running out. If we invite a family over, we basically have to turn our, our living room into the dining room because the kitchen can only hold four people, you know. And so I remember at that time, this was around 2004, that we, back in those days too, we took a step of faith to do something even as a church. And I remember on the heels of that, it was like the Lord, I think, was honoring, in, in my case, honoring faith the step of faith we had taken at that time, I would have never imagined that being tied to this. But I remember a few days leading up to the, to the ending of a big outreach that we were doing at that time, um, my father-in-law called my, my wife and said, hey, I found a house for sale in the paper. And, and Sherry's like, well, how much is it listed for? And he, he said, well, not list, there's no listing number, there's no price given. And she goes, well, it's probably too expensive for us then. You know, if they can't put the price down, then we don't even need to talk about it. Next thing you know, we finish this event, and, I, and Sherry's like, hey, let's go, let's go look at this house. And I'm like, listen, we have a house for sale. We can't even get it sold. Nobody's buying it. You know, but it doesn't seem, it's funny because People with no money, doesn't, it doesn't seem to stop us from going to the mall, right? 
we have no money to spend, but we'll go to the mall anyhow. You know, uh, we can always find something uh, to buy. And I remember thinking, what are we doing this? This is foolish. Why are we looking at a house when we came find someone to buy our house at the time? And I remember uh, we went to the house and the guy's like, hey, man, let's make a deal. You know, I'm like, thank you, but no thank you. Um, I said, uh, he said, and I didn't know what was going on with him in the house, but I said, I'm sorry, but we got a house. We can't even sell it, let alone buy your house. And, and it was the next day I ended up having dinner. Somebody says, Hey, Terry, I want to have you guys for dinner. We met for dinner and at one of the restaurants here in town and halfway through dinner, the individual says, we want to buy your house. This is 24 hours later. And, and I, you know, I politely just put my fork on the plate and I sat back. I said, what do you mean you want to buy my house? And they said, yeah, we want to buy your house. And I said, well, how long have you been thinking about this? And they said, oh, we kind of decided this about three or four months ago. And I'm like, okay, why didn't you tell me three or four months ago? You know, well, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for how it played out, I would have not found the house we're in now. And, and I say that all to say this is that next, I call the other guy. I said, hey, um, let's make a deal. I'll meet you at the title company on Monday. And I sold a house and bought a house in one transaction. And, and it was about a month after we moved in. And this is what I'm talking about when it comes to how we view the things that God gives us. I was pulling out of the driveway that one, one morning about a month later after we had moved in. We moved in around October of 04. So this has been about maybe by November-ish, early November. And as I'm pulling out, the Lord spoke to my heart very clearly and said, see, I gave you what you wanted or what you asked for. And what he meant by that was this. There were two things I always wanted in a house. I like lobbies. I like church lobbies, you know? I like, lo- I like to have a lobby in the, ha- in the house. And that was one of them. And then I like brick. I come from, where I come from, a lot of houses are brick. And I wanted brick. And, 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 in, and in a moment, the Lord says, see, look, I gave you what was in your heart, is what he was saying. And so, in other words, we have, the way we view, and so when I, and, and, and that did so much for me, when it came to understanding or looking at how we view our, the things in our life, the possessions that we have. Sometimes we got to be careful that, that there's a difference between possessing our possessions and our possessions possessing us. Does that make sense? Do you possess your possessions or do your possessions possess you? You know what I'm saying? And so when it comes to, when it comes to, um, when God challenges you in an area of giving or of using your resources, whether it's your, whether it's the, your, the means of your income or your, uh, time and your abilities, whatever it is, the answer should be yes. Amen. Amen? When we said yes to Jesus, the day we got born again, everything uh, that right there settled it in our hearts as to whether or not we belong to Jesus and he belongs to us. If we're still living a life saying, well, okay, this is God's and this is mine, then we're missing the mark. Because in all reality, it's all his. Amen? In all reality, everything we have is because of him. Your promotion is because of him. Your paycheck is because of him. Your wife or your husband is because of him. Your children are because of him. He is the source of all, the Bible says, all good things come from above. Amen? And so James here is addressing, he's saying, come on, guys and gals, stop hoarding. Stop being greedy. Stop 
uh, just saying, you know, mine, mine, mine. But rather, you have to say it's his, his, his. You know, I heard of a story back in the mid part of the last century in the 1940s and 50s. There, were, there was this issue with locusts or grasshoppers sweeping through the, the, the midlands of the United States. And they were wiping out entire crops. And people were going bankrupt. And people were, um, uh, you know, struggling to survive because of this onslaught of the locusts or the grasshoppers consuming their fields. And of course, the neighbors heard about so-and-so, I'll call him George, and heard that, sure enough, this locust came through his property and wiped it all out. And so they, as good friends, they thought, well, let's go over and visit him and see how he's doing, because he's basically lost everything, his whole harvest for the season. And the story is told, they showed up, and they knocked on his door, and George came to the door, and he opened the door, and he says, hey, guys, how you doing? And they, they expected him to be a mess, probably pulling his hair out, weeping, crying, you know, going distraught. And instead he was calm. He said, come on guys, come on in, have a cup of coffee with me. And they sat down and they kind of shoot, shoot the breeze. And after a while, finally one of his friends said, hey, George, you know, you just got wiped out. And what are you gonna do? You just lost everything. And this was George's response. He said, you know what? Being that this is God's farm, if he wants to feed his grasshoppers on my property, that's his business. If he wants to, if he wants to use it in that way, that's, that's up to God. You know what I'm saying? In other words, that he viewed it from God's perspective. He knew the one who gives and the one who takes. He knew the one who provides and the one who blesses. And so when we look at our resources, uh, money is not the source of evil, but it's the love of money that's the source of the evil. Can you say yes? Um, the, and so the problem is, is that, that um, it is not the wealth that brings hardships, but it's the misuse of it that causes our trouble. And so God enables us as believers to become wealthy so that we can support the kingdom of God. That's why I love these declarations that we make. Because it puts, I think it puts everything back in perspective. It puts in perspective the things that we have, the things that we possess, the things that, we, that, that we've earned over the years, the things that we've accumulated. In other words, that ultimately it is to see soul saved. It's ultimately to see the kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I heard a testimony this morning. Somebody was sharing with me. They said uh, their friends started even giving uh, a small amount and they realized by the end of the month they had more than what they had given. In other words, it's amazing how you can never outgive God in any area of your life. Amen? God has a bigger shovel than you do. You may say, okay, God, here you go. Well, he comes back with a plow. You know, he comes back with a bucket, pressed down, as the Bible says, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. That's the kind of God we serve. And, and when you are greedy, when you fight with greed you see God as being a greedy God. He just wants to take. He just wants, he just want, he wants what's mine. But when you are a generous individual and generosity, it will kill the spirit of greed. And not just that, but it will kill the spirit of poverty. So many of us, not just in physical things, but even in our heart, we have this poverty, men, poverty mentality, poverty spirit. 
But when, we are, but when we realize that being sons and daughters of God, that God, as the Bible says, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns it all, and that he is our resource, he is our go-to, he is our provider, when we, when we are generous with him, he is more than generous with us. We begin to see him as being one who's generous. But as long as we're greedy and saying, God, why are you asking me for this? Why do you want this? then we'll always see him as one of greed. But he says, listen here, don't let the food on your table rot. If you have it, give it. Don't let, the, don't let your silver, gold, and precious stones tarnish. If you have the ability to use it toward the kingdom of God, then use it. If it's something that now possesses you, then something's gotta change. Uh, if it's come to the point where now it possesses you rather than you possessing it, then something's got to change, amen? And it may be, and it's going to be different for each one of us. You know, each one of us kind of are dealing with our walk with God and our intimacy with God and what is maybe right for one is not necessarily the answer for the other. And so really it's a personal decision. It's a personal pursuit that each one of us make. It's easy to say, but Lord, what about him or what about her? Like Jesus said to Peter one day, he said, Peter, I'm talking to you. Don't worry about your neighbor. Don't worry about what they're doing and what they're not doing. You worry about the things I've given you. Let's give God praise on that, amen? He says, even to the point where you're defrauding the poor, defrauding employees, defrauding other people in plain sight. He says, uh, this is not the kind of God I am. This is not who you serve. And so, number one, stop hoarding but rather destroy the spirit of greed with generosity. Generosity in your resources, generosity in your time, your abilities. Don't, and I shared this with someone earlier, don't disqualify yourself because you think you don't have what it takes. Realize this, when, when God calls you to take a step of faith, he's obviously gonna provide the means to do it, amen? You may say, but Lord, I don't have the money in the bank or I don't have this or I don't have that. If God's the one calling you to it, he will certainly pay the ticket. He doesn't order something without paying the ticket, amen? He doesn't call for something without having a provision in store. My second point being this, Paul, James was addressing this in verse seven through 12, he says, be patient for the king is coming. Verse seven, you can look at it with me. Brothers and sisters, we must be patient and be filled with expectation as we are waiting for the appearing of the Lord. In other words, when we lose sight of what it's all about, when we lose sight of the fact that not only did Jesus come 2,000 years ago as a baby, lived 33 and a half years and went to the cross and took our sin and took our shame and took all of those things with him and, and when he was buried, that, that was buried. And when he rose again, we who accept him are raised in new, newness of life. And the fact that he came proves he's gonna come again. In fact, he told his disciples, he says, I, you know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make room for you. I'm going to build something for you. There's, a, there's something awaiting you in heaven. And, and, and when we lose sight of that, we become stingy, greedy, selfish, impatient, amen? He says, we must be patient and fill with expectation for the waiting of, or for the appearing of the Lord. Think about it this way. He says, 
it goes on in verse eight, he says, keep your hopes high and keep your hopes high um, and, and be patient for he's coming. Since each of you are part of, the, of God's family, never complain or grumble about each other. You know, I find it interesting, all through this study of James, how many times has James said, stop grumbling about each other? Stop complaining, stop judging, stop picking on, <laughs> stop accusing each other. Over and over again, even, even into chapter 5, I'm realizing, I've heard this before, I've seen this before as I've read this whole book. Over and over again, James says, stop complaining, stop picking on, stop accusing, stop undermining, stop uh, you know, tearing down each other. He, in essence, he's saying here, the remedy to that is be reminded that Jesus is coming. Get your hopes up. Amen? Get your hopes up. Meaning, he's coming soon. You have something to look forward to. In other words, lift your eyes to Jesus. So often we walk around, how many people walk around like this? Just walk around looking at the dirt, walk around looking down, you know, walking around, you know, looking at others. We need to get our eyes off of each other and get them on Jesus. Amen? And getting them on Jesus produces the hope, produces patience. Think about this. Patience has to do with a refusal to retali retaliate against other people, even under pressure. It's when we get our eyes off of Jesus and get our eyes off of the hope that he's coming again, get our eyes off the fact that we're going to see him face to face. When we get our eyes off of him and we put our eyes just on those around us, that's when our patience grows thin. That's when we get grumbly. That's when we get accusatory. That's when we begin to get impatient. It's because we've lost sight of what this is all about. We've lost sight of the fact that, that he's returning for us. He's returning for me and for you. The idea is, is that he's going to return in, all, in, in, in his presence. Um, uh, it's like, a, like one writer says, it's like a potentate. In other words, a ruler coming, returning to a city. Jesus is returning to take his, those who believe in him home. Amen? I said this earlier. He who has the most hope has the most influence. Where's our hope based on? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will appear with a declaration of victory. How many of you know that Jesus is victorious? Amen. The Bible says he, he will appear with the declaration of victory, the shout of an archangel, and the trumpet blast of God. He will descend from heaven's realm and command those who are dead in Christ to rise. Then we who are alive will join them, transported together into the clouds, to have an encounter with the Lord in the air, and we will forever join the Lord. So encourage one another with these words. Are you saying, Pastor, that we're to live a life like we're just want, hope we're ready to escape this life? No, we're not escapists. We're not just. In fact, in the New Testament, oftentimes the disciples and the apostles would have to warn the church and say, "Listen." Don't just sit there and do nothing and, you know, you're just waiting for Jesus to come back again. He says, do something. Even when Israel was taken captivity into Egypt, he said, don't just roll over and die. But rather, he says, get married, have children, 
build houses, put curtains on the wall, paint the walls. He says, do all these things so that you may grow and not diminish. The same is true in our day, is that is that once we're born again and we know that we, we have heaven to look forward to and we know that it's possible in our lifetime that Jesus is going to physically return and, and take his church with him, which will initiate a whole other season of human, human, human history. And that's a whole other message series right there. But we forget, he says, just like the children of Israel, he says, in your day that you're living in, 2019, I don't want you just to roll over and just wait for the Lord. But rather, I want you to get married. I want you to have kids. I want you to serve the body of Christ. I want you to grow and not diminish. God is all about seeing his kingdom grow. How does it grow? It grows with new souls. Us going, as the Bible says, going into the highways and the byways us on our jobs. Do you realize the job you have is not just so you can draw a paycheck, but rather that you can influence it for the kingdom of God? You could be the CEO or president or the manager of a department or just a lowly worker. Like I talked about a couple Sundays ago, sweeping the back of the warehouse, but you're doing it to see the kingdom of God grow. You're doing it to see souls saved. You're doing it to see marriages restored, bodies healed, uh, addictions broken, all of these things. God says here, he says, I didn't save you just for you to sit. I didn't just save you for you to make an impression on the pew every Sunday. <laughs> How many of you have been in churches where you know where people sit by the impressions in the pew? You know who's behind is that width and whose is not. We're called more to make impressions on pews. We're called to make impressions in the world. Amen? We're called to, to impact. We're called to grow. We're called to produce. And James is saying here, he says, when you keep your eyes on the right thing, then he says, you're going to have hope. And he or she who has the most hope has the most influence. Titus 2.13 says it this way. It says, we continue to look forward to the joyful fulfillment of our hope in the, drawing, in, the, in the dawning splendor of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, the Anointed One. In other words, that when we have that kind of hope operating in us, we're going to see the world change, per se. We're going to see souls saved. We're going to see lives change. We're going to see bodies healed. We're going to see, you know, the very things that we practice in this sanctuary is the very thing we should be practicing seven days a week. If, all, if the only time I ever talk about Jesus is right here, right now, on a Sunday morning, then I am a man most miserable. Amen? But we need to be people that seven days a week, 24 hours a day, we're saying, Lord, what am I doing to make you known? How am I conveying Jesus? How am I bringing hope to the hopeless? Amen? And my third... and. Let me move on to my third point here. Restore others. Restore others. Prayer changes people. He, he kind of closes the book. He closes this passage with these words. He says, are there any believers in your fellowship that are suffering great hardship and distress? Encourage them to pray. Are there happy, cheerful ones among you? 
Encourage them to sing out their praises. Are there any sick among you? Then ask the elders of the church to come and pray over the sick and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will heal the sick and the Lord will raise them up and they will be, and they, and if they have committed sins, they will be forgiven. He goes on to say, confess and acknowledge how you have offended one another and then pray for one another to be instantly healed. What he's getting at is here is he's not just talking about the healing of a physical body, but healing from the result of grumbling and criticism. Sometimes we think it's just the healing of sickness, but in the context of what James is saying, he says there's a lot of hurt and pain as a result of the grumbling, as a result of the accusation, as a result of the undermining. He's saying to us, he says, confess to one another, repent to one another, and you'll be healed. Amen? And then pray for one another to be instantly healed. For tremendous power is released through the passionate, heartfelt prayer of a godly believer. It's an, it's an amazing experience when, it was an amazing experience when you were born again. When that thing that was between you and God was removed through, because of Jesus. The same is true when there is nothing between you and another believer. There's nothing like a, a clean conscience. There's nothing like having, uh, having no, there's nothing like being able to love somebody without limitations, without distraction, without offense. And he's saying, if you will come together and repent to one another, in fact, the word even tells us that Peter, I think it tells us that he talks to the husband, husband, if you and your wife are having an offense, God's not even going to, not even going to listen to your prayers. Don't let the, he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Meaning you make sure that everything is good between you and your spouse. If you want to have an open heaven. Does that make sense? Because he says, in essence, if that is not happening, then no matter how much I want to pour out my presence and how much I want to pour out my love, you're not going to be able to experience it because you're inhibited by the offense. It's there. It's not that God's holding back, but rather you can't know it unless you're walking in the love of God, unless you're walking in experience. And, and even with fellow believers, he says, if there's, if there's an offense between you and another believer, he says, before you even go to God, make sure you settle up with that believer. Amen? Even if they are the ones who were the offender and you were the offendee. Well, pastor, it wasn't my fault. I didn't start it. They did it. They said it. But the word tells us, go to the one who offended and make amends. One thing I learned at an early age, it doesn't matter if you were the offender or not, you played a part in it and you need to apologize. Amen? Wow, that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> Somehow we, it takes two to tango, right? You can't say, well, I didn't do nothing. I mean, there may be those rare occasions where maybe you were the bystander and you just got caught in the crossfire. But most of the time, somehow, every, all of us had something to do with it. And it's up to us whether or not we're going to remedy that and say, you know what, please forgive me. For whatever part I played and for what I, and, and, and whatever I did play in this, please forgive me. And he says in, in, in doing this, he is saying that there will be a release of passionate, heartfelt prayer 
in that godly believer, meaning that you will be free in your prayer, free in, your, in, in liberty. And he uses the illustration of Elijah. He tells us that Elijah had the same kind of struggles we have, and yet he faced them in faith, and he obeyed God. And as a result, he told, he told the climate, he told the atmosphere, he said, in essence, stop Stop snowing for the next three years, you know. Stop raining for the next three and a half years. And then three and a half years later, Elijah went out and says, okay, it can rain now. And it began to rain. You may think, wow, that was, he's a super saint. But the word here in James says he was a man of like passions. He faced the same stuff we face. Amen? And so in verse 17, Elijah was a man with human frailties just like us, but he prayed and received supernatural Answers. How many would like to receive supernatural answers? Amen. The word goes on to say, he actually shut up the heavens over the land so they would rain, so that there would be no rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and there was rain. Then verse 19, finally, as members of God's beloved family, we must go after the one who wanders from the truth and, and bring him back. For the one who restores the sinner or the sinning believer back to God from the error of his ways gives back to his soul life from the dead and covers, account, and, and covers over countless sins by their demonstration of love. Talking about that relational part, he says, if you see someone among you that is wavering. See, we live in a politically correct world these days where what's my business is my business and you stay out of it. If this is what I'm doing, it's my business. But in the body of Christ, that is the opposite of what God calls for. When we see someone among us stumbling, wavering, under the load of sin or under the load of discouragement and despair, people can be discouraged for multiple reasons. One of them because of sin in other words, they're, they're, they're beginning to reap the investment they made when it comes to sin. But then there are those times when, uh, when it's just out of sheer disappointment. Sheer, uh, you know, having, maybe having lost sight of the fact that God loves them and has a great call in their life and has raised them up for such a time as this. And not only does he love them, but he's coming to see them soon. There's people like that that get discouraged and walk away. It doesn't happen intentionally. If you were to ever ask someone who's no longer, I'm sure you know of an individual that used to walk with God and was very passionate and loved God with all their heart, and now you can't even find them. Now you're like, where'd they go? They used to be at the prayer meeting every Wednesday. They used to uh, be on the front row every Sunday. They were, they were avid in their walk with God, and now we don't even, now where are they at? It didn't happen just in an instant. Oftentimes it happens gradually and nobody notices or should I say nobody stops and says, hey, what's going on? When you're a part of the body of Christ, what you're saying is this, and I say this of myself, you're saying to other, other members of the body, and of course this, is a, this takes mature, a maturing body, a maturing believer, but you're in essence saying, listen, if you see me, Going down the wrong road, would you please stop me? You may say, why do I need to go to church? Why do I need to have, why do I need to 
need to be part of a smaller group or meet with somebody and have coffee and talk about God. Why do I need all those things? I can do it. But when you say I'm part of this body of Christ, I'm part of the family. I mean, if you had a cousin that was doing this stuff, would you just sit back and watch? If you had a spouse or a child or a, uh, you know, a family member, would you just sit back and watch? No, you'd be on the phone right now saying, hey man, what's going on? I saw your name in the paper. <laughs> what's happening? Where did I go wrong? Can we get together? Come over to my house. That's the same, it's even more so in the body of Christ. When we see individuals that are going through struggles of discouragement, despair, they've lost sight of what the hope is, then in essence, we need to understand, hey, I give you permission. If you see me going the wrong way, please come stop me. Come talk to me. I don't want to, you know, because it's amazing to me that individuals who are going through stuff, believers who are going through stuff, oftentimes choose to do the opposite of what they should do. Because the enemy says, you know what, you just need to kind of shut the door, pull the blinds. You don't need to talk to anybody right now. The enemy will often isolate and ostracize that kind of an individual who is discouraged for one reason or the other. And then what happens is we say, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so for a couple months. What happened to them? That's why we need the body. You know, having our hope in Christ... And when we have our hope in Christ, we do not want even one to perish. Amen? Didn't Peter say it in Peter chapter 4, I think, verse 12 and 13? He says, I'm not willing that even one individual should perish. The same should be of the body of Christ. When we know who God is and know the goodness of God, then we take note of those who are falling and who are discouraged, meaning say, hey, God is too good for this. God is bigger than this. Uh, don't lose out on what God has for you. 